Welcome to Cow Daily. Today we have Zach Polanski, the deputy leader of the Green Party. It's a follow-on from yesterday where we spoke with Nick Hartley, a candidate who had a great show in the bike area of Newcastle. Um, local people um, will know uh, famous for the Grove. Um, but the Grove building actually not being there, there's a little curio for you. Um, he's did, done fantastic. So we took the local view from Nick yesterday. Today we're taking the national view from Zach. Um, before we do that, in the time on a tradition, if you would like to support our work, you can go to patreon.com forward slash cowdaily. That's patreon.com forward slash cowdaily. Um, also a link in the description for PayPal. But without further ado, we'll bring Zach in. Hello, Zach. How are you? You good? I'm great, Mike. How are you? I'm fine, man. Uh, really good, actually. Um, we'll just get straight into it shall we i mean firstly i want to um just highlight the great show that you've had in the local elections recently so as deputy leader how do you feel about the party's performance i mean it's impossible to say anything but delighted i think we've surpassed our own expectations and i'm really excited for the party nationally but actually as you'll know very well on this podcast i think the really you can look for the next conversation about what this means nationally and what it means in parliament mm. but i don't think we should ever lose sight of the fact that this means local people whose first access to politics is often through their local councillor if they're worried about services or libraries or potholes or bins or any of those hyper local issues that can really matter to people they now have a representative who will listen to them and take action and i think you know beyond anything else wherever this goes next and there's lots of places i hope it goes next it's just really exciting to know that has happened and i think that is uplifting for the future i agree i mean uh, for audio people just on the screen we have the results from the england councils i mean you've went up 241 councillors to make 481 are these the most recent figures oh that was declared at 229 so do you have more from there uh yeah so i believe the figure is now i mean I think we're the largest, well, we are the largest party on nine councils. And then there's big stories like Mid-Suffolk, where we now have an outright majority, which is the first time uh, that the UK Green Party or Green Party of England and Wales have an outright majority. And also there's stories like East Hertfordshire. So if I talk about East Hertfordshire, you've got it on the screen now. In 2015, yeah. that was 100% Tory. So that was 50 seats Tory, yeah. no other no other um, councillor from any other party. And I don't think any party, it's ever healthy to have 100% outright majority with no scrutiny whatsoever in 2019 we went to two seats there and then this is the first time we were defending those seats and there was lots of talk of oh will you be able to defend those seats that you um, broke through on last time not only have we defended we've also added another uh, 17 seats there taking us to ninth sorry yeah taking us to 19 seats um in east Hertfordshire. and also yeah it's on the screen there so it's making my life easier lewis we've mm -hmm. wiped the tories out absolutely uh, completely we were already uh, doing well there. We're already uh, working in a co-administration. And Worcester is really exciting too because uh, Young Green uh, toppled the Conservative leader there. And so I wow. think, again, it's just those exciting stories on a hyper-local level where Greens have done stupendously well. I agree. And um, one of the reasons we had Nick on yesterday, um, he didn't didn't win, but he almost doubled his show and nearly unseated the Labour leader of the council, Nick Kemp, in Newcastle. To give you a bit of an example of what that is, I used to be a um, community worker and bike are amongst other areas in the, in the city. It's an area of multiple deprivation. I cannot believe it feels like some alternate reality that that result happened. And with a fair wind, uh, 
the Green candidate, Nick Hartley, would have won and he would have unseated the Labour leader there. I, I just want to highlight that with you because I think you've had so much success where you've actually like took took the win. I think it's about distance travelled. The North East is traditionally quite far behind. We've had great showings in South Tyneside and again in Newcastle. And I think I think Nick can win in Biker next time. So um, I just wanted to say that to you. Don't overlook these places. They've got a great... Um, uh, they've had a great show in South Tyneside as well, and I think it's distance travelled. The green message is going to take a bit longer to get through, you know. Um, so just on on that, what about those I agree areas entirely. as well? So say again, mate. Yeah, I think I think it's I think. Uh, sorry, I agree entirely. So the premise of your question, I think, is is spot on. Yeah, really. There's lots of places where we came strong second places, and that can easily get missed mm. in a narrative that's celebrating wins but actually that's really important too because what you're demonstrating for next time is that we're a serious credible political force in those areas and often those areas are places that are Labour or they're what are considered Labour heartlands but we know the Labour councillors have stopped listening to local people um, and in particular Keir Starmer is the Labour leadership no one really knows what he stands for he stood on a very particular platform made pledges around nationalization tuition fees electoral reform and he seems to be literally abandoning a pledge every every few days yeah. and his argument is always you know political circumstances have changed we've had a pandemic etc and i just think anyone listens to that and knows that that's just not a coherent narrative and actually yeah. uh, it was brilliant to see your interview with nick uh, yesterday actually i think it was a really good example of where someone has been embedded in the community I mean, the authenticity just shone through him about yeah, how he cares about that community and how he hopes for the future. And I, I thought it was brilliant when he said, you know, I'm not expecting Newcastle to necessarily have the breakthrough at the next parliamentary election. And I think it is important that we're honest with people that in the northeast, I don't think that's going to be the first place that the Green Revolution happens straight away. But I can also be honest with people and say huge changes are happening in the northeast. And there's very few local areas that I'm more proud of in terms of Green Party performance than South Tyneside. I mean, David Francis and the whole team there, I think, yeah. again, have uh, shown what politics can be and offered hope to people where they say, actually, there is an alternative to a politics that doesn't listen to you and a politics that is about um, heading to the centre as quickly as possible, especially when the centre has shifted so far to the right in politics anyway. Mm. I don't think you can really call it a centre. And actually are offering that kind of bold, community-based, different approach to politics. And, and something I'm very fond of saying, and it's because it's true, is that Green Party candidates aren't necessarily professional politicians. They're often teachers, nurses, cleaners from a whole range of backgrounds. And they're just people who kind of look at the political system and go, no, we can do better than that. And they've got involved and they don't get whipped by national party. They don't get told how to vote. They listen to the local issues. They listen to their own conscience and then they vote accordingly. And I think the more people see of that type of politics, unsurprisingly, the more they want it to. So, uh, I mean, you'd expect me to say this to you, Mike, because you're a great advocate for the Northeast. But I think the Northeast is really exciting. And I think it often gets neglected generally in the national narrative, but it's certainly not being neglected um, in the Green Party narrative and, and in the Green Party work. And it's somewhere that we're watching very closely and I'm really hopeful for the future. Yeah, me too. I mean, I didn't believe before this week that you could win. And I think you can win now. And I think, I, you know, I think because of the competing crises that are going on, I also think there's a lot of variables and a lot could happen. I mean, take Nick Seaton Biker there, like the, the ward constituency. There's 70% of the people there didn't vote. And knowing that area um, and knowing the, what you can do, which is get on the doorstep, there's a hell of a lot more growth there for you than there is for Labour. Labour are not growing into that. They're the reason people aren't voting. Do you understand? So I think 
um, you might surprise yourself if you get out there on the doorsteps in the northeast and just build because it really is about the activists in the area. I've seen it from nothing. I mean, I'm 46 now, and there was ba barely a presence in the Green Party. It's went from nothing to a springboard where you could actually achieve some pretty incredible results. Um, and I just wanted you to know about that because obviously you've got to be across the whole country. Um, and as you say, there's some amazing successes, but there's all of these sort of secondary things bubbling up, which could surprise you. The Northeast is without hope. And as I said to Nick yesterday, even if you guys are offering a glimmer of that, then it could see some great results. I mean, what do you say to that? Yeah, so I'm, I'm Mancunian. I live in London now, but I was in the Wirral uh, last week. And I know there's always danger of comparing places, but I don't think there's entirely different political situations in the Wirral to, to what can happen in the Northeast. And it just really struck me when I was knocking on doors that without a doubt, when you talk to people, the Green Party are by far the most liked party. That doesn't necessarily yes. people will vote for us and I accept that, but they like us. They like what they see, they like what they hear and they go, yes, that's the kind of country I want. And when you talk about our policies, our policies are incredibly popular. Things like that we've stood up for minimum wage, that we talk about nationalizing our public services. Uh, we've been out there with, with the unions uh, and more importantly, in fact, the workers. Uh, we've been on picket lines. So I think all of that um, politics speaks very proudly, uh, particularly in the north, whether in the northeast or the northwest. And by the way, it speaks to people in the south too, because workers rise. But there are, you know, there's a history there that I think particularly speaks to the north. Um, and the reason why people haven't voted for us in the past are really two reasons, I think. One is that people are scared of the Tories and they want to get the Tories out. And I totally get that. We've had 13 years of Tories and I am more than sick of Tories. Yeah. And I totally accept that I'm not someone who's very vulnerable. Uh, to use your phrasing, uh, Mike, you know, I'm not someone who needs to get food in my belly or heat in the radiator. And I think that's a, a really good framing. So I can understand when people are facing such existential crisis to their lives, they go, I don't have time for politics. I don't have time for complex stories. I just need to get the Tories out. And I think what we're demonstrating more and more is that we're taking seats equally from the Tories as we have been taking from Labour. But if you look yeah. at somewhere like Biker or indeed uh, the Northeast or the Northwest, very often the Tories aren't around anyway. So I've made, been making this argument in Bristol for a long time. If you've been voting Labour and you're not happy with what you're getting, vote Green. And the worst case scenario is you get the Labour MP you would have got anyway. But actually, by voting differently, you're both pushing the potential Labour MP to show them that you're not happy with them. But much more excitingly, much more promisingly, you might get a different type of politics and you could get your Green MP in there. And then the second reason why people haven't voted for us in the past is they just think we couldn't win. They go, really respect what you're doing and saying, but I need to make sure my vote is for someone who wins. And that's why these successes really are so exciting in terms of the future, because what we're demonstrating over and over again is that even under first pass for post, a broken voting system, we have learned by working closely in the communities, by having a strong, principled, coherent set of policies and a politics that speaks truth to power, speaks with authenticity, with kindness and with hope, but also fire when it needs to. That mix of politics, I think, does speak to people and does answer some of the crucial questions we have in society right now. And I think when you stand on that platform, that's a platform people will get behind. I agree. And one of the things you've said at the end, the fire, it's been missing in left-wing politics. Um, as soon as kind of gentler politics was said, I just thought, when we're, we're screwed. Because, like, look, it, at the end of the day, you're not dealing with people on the, on the right or in other areas of politics who are acting in good faith. So unless it comes with a bit of fire and a bit of pushback, people in communities like Biker, I mean, I always look at my mother, right? I'm from working-class background, and she is so switched on, right? 
that doesn't have a particularly good education, but is very intelligent. She would never believe that about herself, though. And she looks at somebody like Keir Starmer, and she had him pegged from the start. She doesn't trust him. She would like if if it was an opportunity to vote green, um, she would vote green. But it wasn't an opportunity in her ward, so they ended up voting Lib Dems, which is something like a working class person in the northeast would never do. So that's what I'm saying. My mother is a bit of a canary in the coal mine, and my father, if they've shifted to Lib Dems because of the flower pot hanging and things like that locally, then something is afoot. And I could easily chat to people like my mother and go, well, how about trying these guys, you know? So I just don't want it to be, um, I know I'm very Northeast focused, and we're going to shift nationally in a moment, but I really do think that there are opportunities, huge ones. And if you come with a bit of fire, that speaks to people like us. We want people to stand up for working class people too. And there's a space for that. And I think I would never have believed it because I'll be completely honest with you, in Biker, say 10 years ago, you guys come in and it'll be like, oh, here come the hippies. Whereas now you're taking it credibly. Like people take like like because of what Nick's done on the doorstep, talking to people, and I'm sure that's the same across the country, but that's in a really working class area. Like that stands out for me because like, I think the perception of you guys is it's a middle-class party. So what do you do um, within the party to encourage working-class representation? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, the, I'm going to partly answer a slightly different question, but I'm going to come directly to your question. It's just because it, it okay, feeds man. in. I'm not doing the politician thing of avoiding your question. I won't um, let you do it. So worry. when I gave my first speech <laughs> to the party conference, <laughs> very good. Uh, it's a typical kind of uh, you know, conference um a speech i gave which was uh, there's no environmental justice without racial and economic justice too and what do i mean by that well i think there's that really good phrase about you know um middle class green politics without kind of class politics is just gardening and i think that's a yeah. really important phrase because actually you've got to have that whole frame when you look at environmental politics but actually that's not a new thing to environmental politics i just don't think it's been communicated brilliantly in the past so if we go for the big scale stuff and then I'll come more local, if you look at the people who are being worst affected by the climate crisis, you know, we've got places like Pakistan where a third of it are underwater. We've got areas of a whole of the Horn of Africa that are uninhabitable through heating. But also right here in the UK, when we see flash floods like we did yesterday in parts of the country, the homes that are getting flooded, you know, the people who are poorest do not have insurance. They might have that basement flat. They might not own it, but they're still, you know, their their um, belongings are all getting destroyed. And so you see this real direct link all the time between the people who are least resilient to the effects of climate are the poorest, are the working class, are often communities of colour. And we see that over and over again. And I think it's important that the environmental frame always puts those people front and centre. Also, mm -hmm. so similarly, again, with communities of colour, if you look at toxic air in our cities, the places that have... Uh, the worst air pollution. We know that air pollution uh, is bad for things like asthma, more obviously, but it's also bad for diabetes. Uh, there's lots of kind of brain issues that can can happen from the particulates. It's all pretty grim. Toxic air tends to happen in working class communities and communities of colour. Now, that is no coincidence because those are the same communities who often don't feel or aren't represented by politicians, where they often have safe seats, where they don't really need to campaign they just pin their rosette on and whether they're red or blue, they get elected in. So there's a real issue between lack of political representation and some of these environmental issues. But more widely too, when we, we talk about class and we talk about workers' rights, we know that a lot of these problems come from big business. They're the oil and gas mm -hmm. companies, but they're not just oil and gas companies. They're obviously huge companies, uh, often huge companies that aren't paying any attention 
to workers' needs. And I don't think it's a big jump to say if someone doesn't care about the environment, of course they're not going to care about the rights of their workers or their mental health or their, their pay. And it works the other way around too. If we can't learn to be compassionate and kind to each other and treat people with respect, then of course we won't treat the natural world with respect. So all of these things are vastly interconnected. And that's why we really need more working class representation in politics. And we need those people speaking up. And um, to come back to, to the story of your mum, and then I'll come directly to answer your question. I think this does answer your question. Something I'm often, uh, every election day, I get lots of tweets or messages or emails from people saying, I saw you on the radio or TV. I really wanted to vote green, but there was no green candidate on the ballot paper. And it breaks my heart because often there's no green on the ballot paper because we're a volunteer led party. So unless in your area of the world, there are some volunteers who go, let's start a green party. One of us should stand, even if we can't win, let's just put our name on the ballot paper. Yeah. Then there will be no green representation in that area. Now, this is fundamental through politics that to be able to have the time to campaign, to be able to have the privilege to put your name on a ballot paper does come with privilege. And that often is skewed towards a middle class uh, kind of uh, background, upbringing, education. And I think it's just really important that we always get the message out there that politics is for everybody. And we need to find ways to be able to enable people, no matter whether they're struggling to pay the rent or, or, or pay heating or feed kids, to be able to have time to politically represent. Now, uh, we don't have exact figures for this yet. It's just too early. But having campaigned around the country this year compared to other years, without a doubt, we have more working class representation. I've been to communities and been in places where we've had Greens standing and so excitingly when they've won. It's that beautiful thing on election night where I'm on the TV and I'm doing very big picture stuff about Green successes. But at the corner of my eye, I'm watching the individual wards that win. And in my head, I go, oh, that's Sophia. Oh, that's Chris. And like, you know, these people and you know what yeah. these people are going to do for their communities. And you know the stories of these people, too, where they say just a few years ago, I didn't even vote. I wasn't involved in politics whatsoever. I just kind of if I did vote, I just voted for Labour because I just thought I need to stop the Tories. These people have become hyper political in the last few years. They're seeing a route now to make a difference. And I think that's how we get more working class representation. We join those dots, not for people, with people. Um, it should never be talking down to people or doing things to people. I think it's about making sure that the space is created for people if they choose and they might not choose, they might choose not to. And that's also a choice. But to choose to get involved. And the best thing I heard this campaign was from one of our um, uh, candidates of colour who's all, also working class. He said to me, um, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And I just thought that's a really powerful phrase for why everyone who can needs to get you know roll up their sleeves and get involved with politics and if it's not for you to get elected and that's not for everyone but i really hope it is uh, more and more for people particularly from those backgrounds but to support yeah. those who will represent you properly to, to get into power i understand i mean I, sorry that was a long doing answer. this uh, <laughs> that's all right it's a good answer but like just push back a little bit i was a community worker for 20 odd years Quite often, people in working class communities want to get involved, but it's like bridging that gap to actually cross the threshold. It feels um, quite often like it makes people feel insecure. It's new. Um, and I've noticed, and I, I definitely felt that I come from a working class backgrounds. Well, when I first started in community work and I got quite far, I, I don't know if it was about me or the people around us. I was around a lot more working class, uh, middle class people the higher up I got. And it felt scary and disempowering and it felt not part of it. So what I would say is you're probably going to have to be a bit more proactive and open to that and actually have people designated to welcome people in um, and brief people that that could be. Because it's different kinds of um, like what I've found is in my like good example is my household. Right. Um, I went to a 
comprehensive school. My partner, she went to a boarding school in Switzerland. Very different. You know, I went northeast of England. She, you know, our father was um, did very well in his chosen profession. So that like is like allowed me to find out that um, confidence seems to be built in to her school system, whereas my school system not at all. It was a sausage machine. So that's kind of what I'm saying. People start at different like levels, at different starting points, and different distance traveled. I found that working with at-risk communities too. So just on that, you're going to have to do more. You're going to have to be more proactive if you actually do want that. People aren't just going to suddenly appear. Uh, some might, but a lot won't. So um, how is that something you would want to take forward within the party, I, I suppose, is the best thing to ask? Yeah, I don't disagree at all. And that's something we've already been doing, actually. So during really? this election, I spent lots of times, for instance, uh, not expecting people to come to our local parties, but I was going to people's community meetings, to their trade union meetings, to their residence association meeting on, on the council estate to make really? sure that we're going to where people are. And speaking to them and encouraging them to get involved we also we have something called the diaca fund which again is for greens of color which is a, a self um a liberation group within the green party where we have funds for those things as well because it's all very right. good to speak to people and encourage them to do it you also need to be able to finance people to do that we also have a campaign school and on our campaign school that's where we take candidates or organizers and we give them training and how to be able to do these things and also making sure there are spaces specifically so we're looking to diverse diversify our representation the final thing I'd say, this is something, uh, so I'm elected in London on the London yeah. Assembly and it's my job to hold London Mayor Sadiq Khan to account. Now I work with Sadiq very constructively, so I try not to oppose him for opposition's sake. Where he gets things right, I applaud it Good. and in fact I'll help him where I can. But where there's gaps in his plans, then I'll see it as my absolute job to expose those gaps and to hold his feet to the fire essentially. Sure. And one of those gaps is around working class and um, ethnic minority representation, particularly around environmental issues. And I've been arguing for a long time, we should have something called a, a climate panel, which is a group of diverse and marginalized voices who are on this panel, who are able to inform me and him about what they're experiencing on the ground. So the community organizers, the people who are trying to save a green space, your teachers, your youth workers, your people who come into daily contact with people who are really struggling. You're able to speak and say, oi, politicians, you've, you've missed this bit here, or have you thought about this? Now, when I suggested this to the mayor, he was vaguely warm about it. He didn't love it, but he didn't dismiss it. But then I said that it would have to be an absolute obligation to that we pay those people. Because if you're saying, I want you to come and give me your expertise, your trauma, mm -hmm. what you're experiencing on the ground, I need you to take a day off work. If you say that, you're only gonna get a certain type of person who can just give a day's, a day's work up or who is okay to speak in a chamber and speak to, to people in power. And when I said we would need to pay these people and support them, he said to me that I shouldn't knock good citizenship, that there are scouts so and boxing touch, coaches man. or you know all sorts of people working in the city for free and absolutely and yes they are working for free and i appreciate they're doing that but that is not the way to run a society that is no. david cameron's big society it's the color exactly. for austerity it's where you are not willing to put the government funding in because you've accepted the idea that there's no money left and instead of challenging that fundamental uh lie you accept that the purse strings are tight and you start talking about how you know you have to pit one community against another. We know, for instance, in the Green Party, I'm really proud of our wealth tax. That's just one idea. That's a 1% tax on the wealthiest 1%, which would raise about 70 to 75 billion pounds a year. Um, along that, you've got a carbon tax. Um, if you uh, tax carbon, say, um, 100 million pounds per tonne, uh, there's 800 million uh, carbon uh, dioxide equivalents 
uh, per year, you're looking at raising about 80 billion just doing that alone. And we know it's about 75, 75, it's about 75 companies uh, causing most of the carbon emissions. So anyway, those are just some ideas about taxation, but there's loads and loads of places that you can generate the revenue to make sure you're funding schemes like this. But to say it's about good citizenship is totally out of touch. Those days are over, man. It's like, especially now, because people can't afford, as I keep saying, heating the radiators, food in the belly. That's what it's all about. And people can't afford that. So like, you're going to get a certain kind of person who has the time. I mean, it's a bit like internships, you know, they're not for working class people, are they? And that, that tends to be a launch pad into certain jobs. Um, just to pivot a little bit, you mentioned Sadiq Khan. Um, one of the things I've noticed, particularly around Newcastle as well, and particularly like white working class areas, is the proliferation of online conspiracy theories, which went up during lockdown regarding um, the so-called green agenda, like, you know, misinformation funded by the Koch brothers, people of that yeah. nature. Um, have you um, come across this? Because I know Sadiq Khan with um, some of his stuff there has been dragged into this. There is a racial element to who's funding this that we've discovered. Are you firstly aware of this? And secondly, if so, what um, are you going to do about it to overcome that messaging? Because green's literally in your name and it's green agenda being thrown down people's faces as something that isn't real. So what what what, what goes on with that for you? Yeah, so I'm hyper aware of it. I literally can't do anything really uh, on national media or online without someone jumping in with a conspiracy theory. So it's something we've got to take seriously. Let me start first with how I won't do it. Um, so recently I was with a, at a public event with Sadiq Khan um, and without a doubt some of this is just plain racism and yeah. me and Sadiq Khan are from different parties but it's so important that we all show solidarity uh, to people of colour and any community that, that is marginalised and faces uh, racism or homophobia or misogyny whatever it might well, be. Well Rishi so, Sunak for one via the Labour Party and that disgraceful messaging that was put out by the Labour Party recently I mean I do not like Rishi Sunak whatsoever. That was disgusting. It was unbelievable unbelievable no place anywhere but anyway sorry carry it's on it's just mate. playing with fire and you know in the next five minutes i wouldn't even have to catch a breath to criticize rishi sunak on the amount of things he does like, that you can there's so much low-hanging fruit isn't and there? put a post yeah. out and have absolutely the moral high ground so the, the fact that you would it wasn't a dog whistle it was a big foghorn and um we saw that with um goldsmith the tory who ran against sadiq khan in 2016 yeah which I'm only referencing that um, mayoral uh, election because it was just before Brexit. It was just before Trump. And I felt like, uh, you know, Steve Bannon was involved in that election. And I think that was when the Tories started to go down a dark road in politics. And um, that's a road now that it seems Keir Starmer seems to be willing to go down because he's willing to do anything to win. And and that, you know, is is so uh, corrosive to, to our democracy and needs to be called out. Anyway. Uh, so I was with Sadiq Khan, and there were um, people kind of shouting about his ultra-low emission zone. Now, I support the ultra-low emission zone. I would argue, uh, and have argued all along with fellow Greens, that it needed more money for scrappage. So you need to make sure that no one was left off, particularly people from working-class communities, charities, businesses. Now, it's important yeah. to say the really, really poor people don't own a car at all. So this argument that the poorest are being the most affected just isn't true in London. But there is legitimate edge cases where actually you needed more money to make sure that, that you could protect people. And, and that's a conversation uh, that, that that will carry on going. Um, but the mayor during this um, session compared the people complaining about that to COVID deniers, vaccine deniers and far right fascists. Now, I get the point he was making about pointing out that there is a coalition here between the conservatives and the far right. 
But I also worry that if we just shout out names at people and don't listen to their concerns or treat them with the severity that they want to be heard, then this is going to get worse because you push people away. I think anyone, whether I agree with them or disagree with them, are worthy of respect of me at least hearing them out. And if I disagree, to be confident in the strength of my own arguments and to take that challenge on. I would say the only exception to that, you know, is fascism, is racism. I think that needs to be called out. But the the view needs to be called out. The individual still needs to be um, considered. Um, it's possible to bring them back. I think if we just give up on people or if we just assume that people are unreachable, then we're creating massive divides in the country that already exist, but will never be able to, to, to be healed or repaired. <coughs> so that's what I wouldn't do. Here's, here's what I would do, or I am doing. At that same session, uh, uh, a community from um, M- uh, not Enfield, E-Link, um, they describe themselves as a poorer working class community, uh, are talking about the, the worries that they have around some of these changes and particularly around the worry about a factory that is pumping toxic air into their community. Um, and the mayor just wouldn't meet them. So I've agreed to go meet them and I will go meet them. Now, I'm not saying I'll agree with them. I'm not saying that they're going to come away and be green voters necessarily. But what I do think is an elected representative, it's my job to represent people. And that includes people who haven't voted for me, includes people whose views I don't necessarily agree with. And to be able to sit down with them, to hear them out, to be able to explain why I'm making the decisions I'm making and agree a continued conversation. And I think the only way that we're going to get through these conspiracy theories is by having a strong, coherent narrative where we're still listening to people, but we're really clear about what we stand for. Now, what I'm not saying there, and I think is absolutely the Labour Party's position, is to triangulate. So to be all things to everyone, to not stand for anything, to give vague promises and just hope you can kind of keep everyone on side. Yeah. I think you just end up irritating everyone and never standing for anything. So I think it's about that fire we were talking about earlier. It's about having a clear platform. I'm never going to give up my green environmental platform. It's really clear to me that we need to protect the most vulnerable people. We need to protect the planet. How we do that, though, needs to be a conversation. And we're straight into the just transition stuff there. Sadiq Khan called me out the other day for saying that I want to shut down City Airport. Absolutely, I want to shut down City Airport. So let's talk now about what's going to happen to people's jobs at City Airport. Let's get them into better industries. Let's get them into green industries. Let's talk about a universal basic income while that just transition is happening. So no one is left poorer than they are now and working in a job that can't have a future if we want to make sure we're protecting the planet. There's loads of jobs out there. We're already talking about um, uh, solar panels, about renewables, about insulation. We're talking about caring jobs, about um, community jobs. All of these jobs are waiting to happen, but we need to invest in them. We can't take people's jobs off them and say the job is coming in a few years time or 10 years time. We can't leave people penniless like that. We've got to make sure we're moving fast and urgently on this. And that includes having a really sensible adult conversation about what a just and fair transition looks like, and particularly making sure that we protect working class and poorer people. Because, you know, let's face it, people who are rich already or wealth already are going to be okay. There's that idea of we're all on the same boat. We are not on the same boat. We're on the same sea, but we're all on very different boats. And there is no we when it comes to universal and climate. We're all going to face it in different ways. And ultimately, we need to make sure we're protecting the poorest. Indeed, I agree. And uh, you mentioned something about universal basic income. Um, it's AI and artificial intelligence, is, it's in the news quite a bit at the minute. Do you think the proliferation of AI is makes UBI, universal basic income, inevitable? Yes, I think so. And um, I wouldn't normally frame it like that, but I'm just answering your question directly because I think, you know, I'm, I'm nervous about AI. I think, you know, there's clearly places where if this is going to improve people's lives, great. 
but all my kind of um i guess life experience as opposed to any ideology is that people need more human contact they need more being able to look in someone's eyes and connect with another human being we know we have a mental health crisis in this country and you know we say it's a mental health crisis really it's a Tory crisis. It's mental health that's been exacerbated by spiraling uh, or uh, you know um, spiraling wages, by overinflated rental market, by people not being able to buy a house, by being over policed and underprotected. All of these things have created the conditions to then claim as a mental health crisis. But people's mental health is often only in a precarious place because society is no longer there defending them. I was reflecting, actually, I'm, I'm reading this amazing book at the moment um, called All Together Now, which talks about the People's March for Jobs, which was in 1981, where a group of people walked from Liverpool to London to protest Thatcher's government. And the writer never went on that march. His dad did, but it never felt important to him at the time. In 2016, he does the march again, uh, but on his own this time, sorry. So he does the march in his father's footsteps uh, during the Brexit referendum. And he goes through all of these towns and, and he talks to people. And then um, he's just reflecting in the book about how the council used to be someone you used to turn to as a friend or someone that would support you. Whereas most people's experience of the council now, um, and it's not even a political point, this is across all councils because of the, the funding's been cut, is that they're there to tell you off or to punish you or to catch you out on something. And that's, a, you know, that's been very deliberate by the Tories. That's, you know, privatisation is a legal scam. That's a way of cutting the state cutting the support network and ultimately trusting the free market on everything. And this is no longer hypothetical. We saw in six weeks what Liz Truss's ideology did, which was the natural extension of where this is taking us. It yeah. crashed the economy. It caused mass devastation, not just to poor people, incidentally, to everyone. But of course, the poor people as so often got hit the hardest. Um, so anyway, so that's artificial intelligence. I just, you know, I, I I'm always wary of being the green that, you know, people say, oh, you just want all the lights off and, and don't want to, you know, want to live in caves. That's absolutely not it. We need to be a more interconnected society. There's a place for technology to um, give people a better voice. We're able to do podcasts like this on Twitter. You know, people can pick up social media and have their voice heard. So that mm. shift in balance around technology, I think, can be a healthy thing. Often is not, but can be healthy. Universal basic income, though, just on its own. I think is an incredibly positive step forward. We know universal credit hasn't worked. We know that again, there's been this Tory ideology, which is now backed up by labor of the working poor, the undeserving poor, the idea if you don't have a job, it's all your fault. Never mind the fact that a lot of people claiming universal credit have jobs anyway. But even if someone does not have a job, that should not be a reason to stigmatize people in society. That's a complete um, unfair frame that has been exacerbated um, by a, a Tory party that has always wanted to punch down. And actually, a universal basic income just makes the case that everyone, no matter who you are, no matter what your life circumstances, no matter whether you're employed or not employed, should have a basic uh, amount of money that would pay for your rent, your transport, your basic health needs. Although, of course, the NHS needs to stay free at the point of use and, and free at the point of need. Um, and I, I think that's a conversation that we need to have anyway, regardless of artificial intelligence and places where this is happening around the world, they find this is not just good for people's income, although, of course, it would be that for obvious reasons. It's good for their nutrition. It's good for their ability to educate themselves or to go to university. It's good for women's empowerment. All of these things are, are good reasons for a universal basic income to be implemented. And the final thing I'd say is when that's implemented, it's vital too that disabled people are not left worse off. So whether it also includes a top up for disability benefits or disabled people receive a higher universal basic income, 
uh, you know, that needs to be considered. That's often one of the reasons against it. And I totally hear it. But essentially, that's not a reason against universal basic income. That's a reason why universal basic income from the beginning needs to have that baked in to make sure no one's left worse off. Um, the only people who will be worse off are the very wealthy people who will get taxed more. Um, but that's exactly what we need to redistribute wealth. Understood. I mean, just what, what, one or two, well, two questions on the same topic from me, and then we'll take one or two from the comment and we'll let you go after that, if that's all right. Um, so what's your plan sure. for people who have long COVID? The last estimate was 1.9 million people have long COVID and it's growing. And I just don't see this on the political agenda. Whereas we broadcast at 9.30 every morning and there's people in the live chat now who are clinically extremely vulnerable, who basically can't leave the house. So what's your plan for that? For that? Yeah, I have a good friend who, um, very articulate individual who is highly passionate about politics, really, really involved. Um, and at one point I asked them to sign something for me and just in the moment of signing something, couldn't remember what they were signing. Um, obviously, then didn't sign it in terms of it wasn't wasn't pushing that. But I'm, I'm talking about the fact that people's health has been so badly affected in these stories. Sure. I think so many people have them or have experiences of people who have lost uh, their ability to function in the way that they used to, either in small ways that, you know, people talking about brain fog or not being able to get words out. And in large, large ways where people are, you know, without a doubt, um, severely disabled. And this just is not on the, the mainstream narrative. So I think the first thing is to talk about it more. My colleague on the London Assembly, uh, Caroline Russell, was chairing the health committee. And she certainly made sure that, that long COVID was, was on the agenda there. But on the national level, that needs to happen too. I think there's a much broader point, though, about our health system, where we have 133,000 vacancies in the health system. And we have both uh, a Labour opposition and a Tory government who are not willing to give the NHS the investment it needs. And we put £6 billion extra a year into the NHS, including money for adult social care and making sure that's also supported. Um, but I think more than that as well is talking about workers' pay and the pay of people who work for the NHS. And again, right-wing media narratives often pit workers against workers. But the Institute for Fiscal Studies, who are hardly a radical organisation, said that if you were to give everyone a 7% pay rise, and I think it should be more than that, but let's say 7%, that would only cost £5 billion. So in the grand scheme of what a government's budget is and where we could raise money from, giving all NHS workers a decent pay rise. And uh, I was really pleased the Green Party were the only party that backed the NHS's call for a 15% pay rise for all uh, NHS workers. These things are all credible things they can do. Now, that's not avoiding the question about long COVID, but my point here is, is if you have all of these vacancies and you have an NHS that's struggling to deal just with a basic service, you can understand why new issues, new relative to, to 2019, are being lost, are being ignored, why waiting lists are getting bigger, why research isn't happening, all of those things. Ultimately, we have an NHS that's been chronically underfunded and underprotected from politicians. And I think it's all a question of political priority. And if people's health is not one of our priorities, then you really have to question what is the point of the government. So um, dealing with long COVID by talking about it more, but talking is not going to be what changes this. It needs investment and it needs research and it needs to make sure that there's an NHS that's, that's properly invested in. I agree. And I mean, like, obviously, that's the sort of medical individual issues. But also beyond that, if we take it from a societal perspective, it's unsustainable. The economy cannot like support this amount of additional um, working age people who are disabled. 
I mean, I, just from my perspective, I was one of them. I mean, I've come out the other side, but I had the brain fog, like you said there about your friend who couldn't sign stuff. I couldn't remember what I was doing. It was intensely scary. Um, I had um, such a low immune system. I had shingles for a year. Like that was, I mean, I'll not go any deeper, but it wasn't great. And there's people in the comments who are saying this too. We, we found out that mitigations can be done. And there's things called um, either HEPA filters or HEPA filters. These have been installed in the Palace of Westminster, the Ministry of Defence, and they're in every room at the World Economic Forum. So that, like, what for people who don't know, they remove COVID from the air. I mean, if you look over my shoulder, right, it's that white thing there. Hold on a minute. There. That's one there. It costs £50 yeah. pounds and it changes the, the air in the room five times an hour. Um, in Andalusia, the, the public um, transport system have had them installed on every bus. Um, also in South Korea, the uh, government there are optimizing their engineering department to build one for schools because they understand that like, like schools are a vector for COVID and other disease. And it's not just COVID they removed. So these, there's precedence for this. Our own country's doing this. It's not being promoted or, or anything like that. And nor has had the government acknowledged that it's an airborne disease. So what I'm asking you is, are you going to start talking about this? Because there's no politicians talking about this. It's just a problem that's been built up for the future. The economy will crash, but also there's, there's so much heartache. I know people in the last two weeks, one guy was a care worker throughout the pandemic. He's been had multiple infections. We found out recently um, a Stanford study, and it is a preprint, has said that multiple infections close together is akin to the effect of HIV on the, the immune system. No politician is talking about this, and this is going to explode, not just in individuals' lives, but on a society level. So with that being said, would you commit to actually talking about like getting simple filtration systems in public transport and public schools? Because I can't see how any politician can continue to be credible if they aren't talking about this too. Um, what do you say? Yes, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear about your personal experience, first of all. I'm pushing back on your question very slightly, but I'm agreeing with you. It is something we've been talking about, and um, you know, there's evidence and links for that. I think that speaks to a wider issue that the Green Party, we just often don't get heard, unless it's about an environmental issue, then the media yeah, sure. rush to kind of have our opinion on it. But on health, on class, on poverty, uh, we really need to fight, fight to be heard. Now, that's improving. Um, and and over the election period, uh, you know, I didn't stop. I was on Sky, BBC News, LBC, like it was just constant. But that was because during that very short period, there's balancing rules. And so the broadcasters have to give us equal time. Um, and then as soon as the election finished, it just goes away. And actually, the, the yeah. media opportunities get very, very few and far between. And so often when we get on the media, we just have to go for a one simple core message, which is often for me, there's no environmental justice without racial, social and economic justice too. And that's something I say yeah. all the time. Now, this, I would argue, is included in that. This is about health justice and this is about poorer people uh, not having the same access to the same uh, basic proportions that something like the Ministry of Defence or uh, you know Westminster have. And that's really important. I'd also point out that we have a spokesperson, Dr. Pallavi, um, who is a GP uh, who has been speaking about this too. And it's something I'm really proud of in the Green Party that our spokespeople. So if you look at our education spokesperson, they're a sixth form teacher. They're also a candidate on the Isle of Wight for a parliamentary candidate, but they're someone mm -hmm. who's had experience of the things they're speaking about. And it's the same with our health spokesperson. You know, it's someone who's working as a GP. They know what it's like on the ground and then they're speaking out 
on those same things. So I totally accept the frustration in your question that this situation is happening. I hope you also hear the frustration in mind that often people say to me, the most common thing is people say to me things like, uh, you know, I'll do an event and they'll go, you talk about workers' rights really passionately and really clearly. I wish I could hear you talking about that, you know, on the BBC on Politics Live. And I go, I'd love to talk about it on Politics Live too, but let me give you an example, actually. This is outrageous. I've not talked about it publicly and I'll explain why, but this is the first time I am. So I was on Politics Live last week during the election results. I was mm -hmm. given a five-minute slot. And the reason why I haven't talked about this publicly is it's very rare I even get a five-minute slot. So you go, you have to find this balance between saying thank you for that slot but also the way they gave me the slot was outrageous. You have the studio where you have Joe Coburn and the host and the panel. They had a Labour MP, a Tory MP, and a commentator from GB News. They were on for about an hour. I was on for five minutes, but I was put in a room next to the room that they're on the panel. So it looked like I was distant, like I was somewhere else in the country or just not in the same studio. I was put in a black box where I just had one camera that I had to speak down while the presenter asked me some questions. Now, again, I was grateful that we got some airtime and I think I used those five minutes particularly well. And, it, you know, from the from re reaction online, what I said really spoke to people. But just the fact that a GB News presenter was considered more worthy of an hour of time than a deputy leader of a national party who just won all of those seats shows yeah. the entrenched bias against the Green Party in, in this country. And I heard on your podcast yesterday, I think it was either you, Mike or Nick, that said Nigel Farage had a season ticket to question time and you know that's a, a very good phrase for it we have so many more councillors now than ukip did even at their peak so there is a huge bias against the politics that is talking out against the establishment or against the status quo and i think yeah. talking about air filtration uh, particularly in our public buildings uh, is mm -hmm. something that would worry a lot of that establishment but you know i accept also what you say and i will uh, try and find ways to talk about it at least if it's in forums that aren't necessarily on the national media but talk about it more when i'm within communities because actually that's how you empower people to get together and organize and make this a campaign that the other parties can't resist i agree and we talk about privilege and you've mentioned privilege a lot in this i mean this is the ultimate sort of privilege thing it's disproportionately people from lower incomes who have been affected by this so as i say one of the listeners of the podcast is currently in the the heart ward in the qe in in gated that's the hospital there um, he's been moved from the lung ward and this is pos quite possibly repeat COVID infections as a care worker throughout the lockdown. There's another lad, I know he's a DJ, he passed out and had a stroke in the toilet at an event at the weekend. This is happening and it's happening in individual cases because we're, it's almost like COVID's a taboo and I worry um, I'm being completely candid with you that politicians are going to just kick this into the long grass when it can't be. It, there's no way it can be uh, because the, the the problems are presenting themselves as they go. And it's no good that people just won't talk about it and sweep it under the carpet and it'll go away. We need people like you to stand up for clinically extremely vulnerable people. Are we just going to be an island that has um, like prisoner, prisoners that aren't in a jail? Because I know it's not just the UK, but this is, a, for me, a disgusting element of the post-pandemic world that Boris Johnson just went, right, it's over, much like George W. Bush, mission accomplished, it's done. And then the war went on for another 12 years afterwards. We're still in the midst of this. People in working class communities having to do face-to-face -face work um, with the public, public facing work, are getting stricken by this and nobody's listening. So we need you as a party to actually grab your balls and speak about this because I don't think I can support anything personally that doesn't. It's such a clearly evidenced um, problem 
I mean, look, we've got the South Koreans that they're doing stuff about this. They're being proactive. Why? Why not the UK? Yeah, I think I, I just add to that too. My boyfriend works in palliative care, so you know, every day he's working yeah. with people who this literally might be their last day, and then um, they're all still in masks and they're all still taking COVID precautions <laughs> for obvious reasons. And he just says to me, "It feels like a different world if you know we go yeah. to the theatre or we go, you know, to a political event uh, where I take him and he about it. There's no precaution, and then at work he's reminded every day of what this has done to people's lives." And yeah. obviously not everyone who's working with palliatively, you know, has had COVID, but the effects of COVID have either made people's conditions worse or made people more isolated. And yeah, I think these people have just been, to use the phrase that's often badly used, but in this time it's the right extent, they've been left behind. They've just been forgotten. Yeah. And the government think they're palliative anyway. We don't need to invest money to, to protect these people. And, you know, that's, that's grim and, and does need calling out. It does. And I mean, I'll be honest with you and completely candid. If I hear politicians not willing to speak up for this and they're from party which claims to be for everybody, which the Greens are, I just think you're playing politics and I don't like it because I want to be getting behind something I, I fully believe in. And I think a lot of people are looking for that. But we can't, like, again, we cannot just forget about people. Like, that's not, like, a rational thing to do because that's, like, you know, you throw a, a pebble in the water and there's a ripple effect. It's not just that one person that's affected. My partner was effectively my carer for a year, you know. I, before that, not unconnected to this, I had spinal surgery. So she was effectively caring for me then as well. So that can't continue to go on because that pulls other people out of work and the economy just doesn't work. So I just don't think anybody's being rational about this right now. And I understand. I mean, we talk about this on the podcast a lot. After the Spanish flu, there was the great forgetting. And I think we're in this great forgetting period. There's some psychological issue going on where people won't confront the taboo. And unless we confront the taboo, there'll be problems down the line. And I guarantee you the right wing will attribute them to things that aren't true. So I just wanted to get ahead of this with you guys, man. Like, Seriously, the, we talk about this all the time, and I just don't think anybody can be credible unless you're challenging this, you know, personally. I, think I mean, right. I know and there's a lot of people who watch and listen feel the same, you know. Yeah, and that's why it's something we talk about and, and the, you know, um, press released, for instance, in the past and also, you know, campaigned on. I think the other adjacent issue to this is the role of unpaid carers in our society. Now, yeah. I would argue to look after these people just for the humanitarian sense, but if you want to make an economic case and you've partly made it already, the amount this is taking away from the economy, because actually, if you were investing in these people, then you could be investing in jobs elsewhere, too. And actually, being a carer is a green job. People often think of green jobs as yeah. gardening or renewables or solar panels, but actually caring for your community, whether that's your family or someone you don't know, is a green job. And that deserves to be treated as one. And that should be invested in too. And again, that's just something that just often isn't spoken about. I met the Royal College of Nurses uh, a couple of weeks ago and I went to, to yeah. speak to their staff there and they were talking about childcare as well. The amount of nurses, for instance, who work on A&E mm -hmm. and because of finding affordable childcare means that they can't take a shift at the A&E. Again, I'd say the yeah. bigger problem is for health issues and the humanitarian ones, but even on the Tories' own terms, this is an economic issue too. You can't run a country if you're not supporting the people who are supporting the country to run. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a problem because it's become politicised and public health issues should never be politicised, but they have been. I mean, you look at the Andrew Bridgen thing at the moment where he's crossed 
to whatever Lawrence Fox's parties call themselves this week. And it's basically like a, the part of that whole ecosystem um, of heavily funded billionaire misinformation. And he's just going to be standing up there and get some kind of Tucker Carlson job afterwards. We need to push back against this crap, man, because it's really affecting like people. <laughs> like I'm lucky, I'm one of the lucky ones. I came out the other side, and I can't not ask about this if I'm in front of a politician. Not because of what happened to me, but because I'd feel disloyal. I mean, I've got a mate who's like out of many. She's going out to work. She was basically barely left the house for two years, and then it, the the whole thing was unlocked. And it was like go to work or don't. It's on you now, and that's just pure like Ayn Rand libertarian bullshit and that is nowhere to run a society so i we need you guys to be rational because there's nobody rational in the room you know and i think that's what this is people yeah. want to like put this because it's now a marginal opinion even though it's all backed up with evidence because nobody talks about it people will go well we've got all this other stuff to talk about and these those things are um like things that are really important too but every day i'm hearing more and more people that we know going down with this so i just can't see how we can like run a society going forwards without it what i will do because i'm appreciative of your time mate, you've answered pretty comprehensively we'll take one or two from the uh, people who are in the chat and then i'll let you go because you've been really um great with your time thank you so much uh, so this is from kevin taft given the lack of support to striking unions from labor what's the green plan to work with larger unions like the cw etc yeah, a really good question. So that's we're always reaching out to, to the largest unions to, to work with them. The problem, as many people know at the moment, is a lot of them are still affiliated with the Labour Party and are funding them. Uh, you would expect me as deputy leader of the Green Party to say, well, I would rather they weren't affiliated to the Labour Party. And even if they're not funding us, it still feels like it's contrary to their mission to stand yeah. up for workers' rights but support a party that won't stand with them. I never accept this idea that Keir Starmer says a government in waiting should not be on the picket line. That's exactly where a government in waiting should be, because if you think you are knowledgeable enough and evidence-based enough to be able to represent people, then standing with people and listening to their concerns rather than talking at them, but just actually listening to them is fundamental to running a government. And that's the definition of solidarity. In terms of smaller unions, I'm doing loads of work uh, in London, but also more widely nationally. I've been working a lot with a union called UVW, that's United Voices of the World. Uh, their own description is there for low-paid black and brown migrant workers. Uh, yeah. Very often I'm working with cleaners, uh, care home workers, etc. There's one care home that I help them protect or protect their wage in North London. And they're now some of the highest paid care workers in London, which is pretty exciting. But it took a while to get there. The first time we challenged, the CEO rewarded them with cold pizza rather than a pay rise. So it's really yeah. clear that we're going to need to hold their feet to the fire. But on the larger unions, I think the only thing I can really do is keep being a voice with the workers, keep standing up for the, what the Green Party stand for, for our social justice platform, and hope that within the unions, there starts to be pressure to say, actually, the Green Party of a party to go representatives and talk to. Yeah, got you, man. Just one more. Um, this is from Glasgow of the Red. What's the most realistic route of proportional representation? And does Zach think the Greens can realistically make any inroads in a general election whilst under first past the post? Uh, this is one of my favourite types of questions. Um, I should say this is nothing to Glasgow, but I'm Zach with a K. I just always get used to telling people, particularly <laughs> if you're looking at me on Twitter, it's Zach Polanski, but with a K. Got you, man. So the actual question, though. Um, so I'll answer the second part first. I think we are definitely on the inroads 
to winning an MP even under first past the post. So if you look at somewhere like Bristol, for instance, uh, there's 20 councillors there in the Bristol West constituency. 17 of them are green. And so you go, if people vote nationally the same way they did locally, that is your next green MP, which would be Carla Denyer, who's our co-leader. If anyone doesn't know Carla, please go out because you know she's mm -hmm. won the before. Uh, also Mid-Suffolk, where we won the outright majority, we've now won the popular share of a vote across Suffolk if people vote the same way nationally as they did locally. That's your next green MP and Adrian Ramsey. Now I accept there's a challenge there because people often vote the rest of the leadership team is <coughs> sorry excuse me amplifying these wins that we've got at a local level and giving the vision of what this would mean nationally to the wider question though uh, it's not fair on a voter that people have to look at you know uh can labor win here can this happen here and start to tactically vote with things because ultimately everyone's vote should count and there are only two countries in europe that use first pass for post uh us and Belarus, which is literally a corrupt dictatorship. So I think yeah. ultimately the argument is to get a change in the system. And um, so I'd love to promote um, on, uh, I want to say 24th of May, but check out Make Votes Matter. That's Make Votes Matter. They have a campaign for proportional representation. They're doing an event uh, in a couple of weeks called Sort the System. They're encouraging everyone who can to make it down to Westminster and make a meeting with your MP. We're hoping to have hundreds of people in the lobby. We've done this before and it worked pretty well last time everyone asks to go speak to their MP and lobby your MP on proportional representation. Now, if you have an MP that you know just won't come or doesn't support proportional representation, if you can make it, please come anyway, because it both gives support to other people and gives a sense of morale, but also it gives your MP, no matter how much they oppose it, the sense that actually what they're doing is not popular and they are being challenged. Now, again, to come back to that point about privilege, I know for lots of people to make it to London and to give a day up of their time is not something that everyone can do and that's a problem with our political system and i'd love to be able to say we could pay for everyone to do that but if you can't make it to london please do check out make votes matter anyway check out that campaign campaign see if you can amplify it on social media or let friends or family know about it i mean i think i think we were just talking about the reclaim party there which is andrew bridgen you know i heard that news yesterday and your heart just sinks and you go we're going through nigel farage all again all over again and i think we need an antidote to that and i believe strongly oh, yeah. the green party by putting compassion, authenticity, care, speaking truth to power, along with a mix of that fire. I think that is the antidote to these politics. And I think to win under first pass for post, as we have just done in councils all across the country, we can do that at, at government level and at national representation. We see the difference that Caroline Lucas makes in parliament. Just having one green MP changes the national conversation, but to get two, three, five green MPs, and then looking at the next time round to getting a much more substantial amount is an antidote to the toxic politics or the apathetic at best politics that we get from the Conservative and Labour parties. Oh, I agree, man. I really good way, way to end it as well. Zach, I want to thank you. You've been really generous with your time, man. And um, I really thank you as well. For, and people, It's been overwhelmingly positive in the comments where people are just like full respect to you for being here, answering questions from the live chat and being available. I've been putting some of these things up on the screen. People feel find it really refreshing um and i do too so thank you very much my pleasure and i really appreciate you doing this format and the work you're doing to um i guess communicate both with politicians but more more importantly with people in communities and give people the space to to convene and be able to have these conversations and i also appreciate the push that you made on long COVID. i think anytime you get a politician in front of you it's it's worth it you know no matter whether they agree with you which i happen to it's still good to push the importance of talking about these things so thank you very much 
I agree, man, definitely. And um, I, I hope you do look into it a bit more. But, you know, just over, overall, I'm really proud of the work that your activists have done. And as I said at the top of the show, um, Nick and the people in South Tyneside too, amazing. It's, they've created something from nothing there. And um, the, I just fully respect them because no, people in the area would have thought that would never have happened. Um, so yeah, just a few comments on the screen from people coming in, just saying thanks very much. So thanks very much, my friend. Um, obviously an open invite. If you ever want to come back, you're more than welcome. And I Thank wish you. you every success. I really think that a, the Greens' success will be the success of the country um, because on most things, you're absolutely bang on. So thanks very much, my friend. I'll just do a roundup for everybody. And um, if you ever need to get in touch, Thank you so much. we're always here to listen. Thanks, man. All the best. See you later. So that was Zach. Um, just put a few of your comments up on the screen. Many thanks. Very informative. Slaz, um, Jenny Schramm saying, thanks, Zach. Someone once told me Greens are just Tories on bikes, something I really don't agree with now. Really good. Um, loads of other thanks, Zach, and positive comments. And um, I think on, on balance, um, what a good guy. And you want him to be um, somebody who's actually in these positions of power. And look, let's give the Greens a go. Um, as you know, people have been watching and listening for a while. I was completely not going to vote. Decided because of Chris Wilson, who talked us into it, to vote green. And I thought, well, let's explore this and bring people on. So that's what we've done. Glasgow to Red. Great show, Mike. As per, cheers, mate. Just on your T-shirt as well. Um, obviously, it was Bank Holiday Monday. One of our other dogs is getting an operation. So it's a, it sounds a bit dog ate me homework. I'll speak to me more. You'll get your T-shirt. Don't worry. It's coming. It's just as usual. I've got loads on. Um, Kate is saying, feel a lot more confident knowing where they stand for now. Great. Jez is saying, he's a nice fella. Zoe's saying, good show, fully behind them now. That's great, man. I mean, we need we need political vehicles and we need people like Zach in these positions. And I tell you, I could be, I'll be a happy man if they get a few more, you know, a few more MPs, loads more councillors, really shake things up. And that's what we want to see, isn't it? So, if you want to support work, go to PAT, RUN.com forward slash cow daily. That's patreon.com forward slash cow daily. Links in the description for PayPal if you want to support work and keep work Gannon. See a couple more comments before we get off. Um, Leon saying, great episode today. Thanks very much, everybody. Uh, Jenny saying, Brill Show. Thinking of joining. Thanks, Mike. Hey, you could do worse than join the Greens right now and get yourself in there. And as Zach said, just get the representation going if there's not a branch start one and try it from there because at the end of the day the the as far as i can see greens are the only like sort of credible show in town which are positioned to potentially win and i think people talk a lot about winning winning is coming a very close second with a platform to build on like nick hartley because remember it's distance traveled but it's also all of the um great things that the greens have done by actually winning councils and count and ward seats great stuff thanks everybody really good show and i am getting off to walk the dog hope you all have a great time and um praise prayers up for scrappy um he's lost the use of his back legs and he's infirm and he's very old and we think it's a spinal problem and he might need a spinal surgery um and he might not survive so yeah i've cried a couple of times yesterday but you know put your prayers up for my boy um Right, catch you later. I'm starting to choke up there. Don't choke up on camera, it's a bad look. Right, I'll see you later. Hold on.